Welcome, market participants, to another three things in credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. You'll be pleased to know that, unlike the rest of America, there is no shortage of things to talk about here. America may be on back order, but not three things in credit. Let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, the rise in energy prices is spooking politicians and investors. What does it mean for credit? We'll set the context. Two, as we enter Q3 earnings season, all eyes are on corporate margins. Powering through the multitude of headwinds is a tall order. And three, Europe's political winds are shifting in ways that are reducing Euro area credit risk. We'll talk to KBRA's European-based sovereign analyst for his take. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. So how should credit investors think about the spike in energy prices? What happens in energy shouldn't matter all that much. The sector represents 3% of the S&P 500. The U.S. spends less than 6% of GDP on energy. Moreover, according to McKinsey, there is a decoupling between rates of economic growth and energy demand something that is expected to accelerate in the years ahead as new technologies and an ongoing shift to an increasingly services-oriented economy flatten out the energy demand curve. Nevertheless, investors will painfully recall 2014 and 15's oil price plunge that sent high-yield spreads 500-plus basis points wider over the course of 18 months. The slowing of the global economy and surging production from fracking and horizontal drilling advances in the U.S drove that energy price movement. If we think back to 2007 and 8, meteoric rise in the price of oil from $50 a barrel to its all-time high of $147, recall that the price rise eventually had a material impact on consumer spending, domestic autos in particular. And the subsequent plunge of the commodity reflected the swift contraction of global growth leading into the GFC. Now, of course, to be fair, there's a lot going on economically in parallel to the move in energy prices that plays a role in broader market spread moves. That was especially true in the 2007 and 8 timeframe, but maybe that's the point. Energy price movements can have outsized effects on investor sentiment, not only as a result of the direct impact on consumers and businesses, but also what it reflects about the global economy and geopolitics. For consumers, it serves as a tax that reduces spending on other things. For businesses, it compresses margins. The actual impact of those moves tends not to be all that material and typically does not last all that long, but it can play a role in tipping economies over into recession. So spread widening tends to take place when the global economic growth impulse diminishes, causing a spike in energy prices to reverse. Wow, that almost sounds like a warning. We've got an energy spike and decelerating global growth. Hmm, one more thing to think about. This time might be different. An interesting piece in The Economist, October 4th, makes a compelling case that the era of energy abundance is over. The shale and clean energy booms helped to create an oversupply situation in recent years, which also had the effect of driving up geopolitical tensions as producing states jockeyed with one another. But now we're in a shortage, born partly out of pandemic-driven conservatism and partly out of the rise in ESG, where broader stakeholder preferences have discouraged energy firms from investing in fossil fuels. 
Add to that the wealth generated by higher prices for producer countries that sorely need it. And the incentive to produce more to drive down price simply isn't there. And remember, the 13 largest oil producers in the world are state-owned enterprises. This time might truly be different. All right, on to our second thing, margin headwinds. Unprecedented helicopter money, $5 trillion or so, just in the U.S., will stimulate demand. Coupled with a limited opportunity set, significantly reduced travel, leisure, and hospitality will create even more demand for things we can spend money on. Things like durable goods, cars and home furnishings and the like, and homes. And that still leaves more than a bit for the so-called boredom economy, DraftKings, Robinhood, crypto. That excess demand, no doubt, allowed less directly impacted by COVID companies in 2020 and into 2021 to reap cyclical highs in terms of margins. Higher costs that came with the territory could easily be passed along to consumers in the form of higher prices. Because, ironically, consumers were flush with all the stimulus-fueled wealth. But then capitalism kicks in as the economy restarts and those excess profits get competed away. So while clear issues are lingering on the supply side of the equation, demand remains relatively strong even as stimulus wears off, so we are expecting margin pressure. Yet the Bloomberg consensus for the S&P 1500, that's small, mid-size, and large-cap stocks, is calling for EBITDA margins to hit a cyclical high in 2021 of 20.8%, in 2022 of 21.3%. Those compared to 17.4% average for the five years pre-COVID. To get to those numbers, companies are going to have to fight through, one, decelerating economic growth, basically 6% GDP growth in 2021, 4% in 2022, 2% in 2023. Two, higher energy costs. Remember, the end of abundance. Three, higher ESG compliance and adjustment costs. And four, higher labor costs due to the shrinking labor force. And if we talk more broadly about corporate earnings, don't forget to throw in higher taxes. Wild cards here are the effects of globalization, which we believe will reassert itself, and interest rates, which we are less confident they will rise meaningfully anytime soon. Maybe that's an offset. The point is, these are some significant headwinds. As we've said time and time again, 2021 is not normal. All right, on to our third thing, Europe's strengthening credit. We've talked in the past on how crises can be unifying events, but not just any crises, only ones where no one is to blame. For context, the GFC, which featured the height of finger pointing, was anything but a unifying event, and a largely misguided policy response was the result. COVID, on the other hand, is the type of event that should fare better, although we'd be the first to admit that the degree to which it has been hijacked and politicized is, quite frankly, bizarre. In any event, one of the more surprising outcomes, one that has very real credit implications, has been the Euro area response. Here to walk us through this story is Ken Egan, our Dublin-based sovereign analyst here at KBRA. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Van. It's great to be here. So Ken, I know we're doing some work and you're closely following the political support and how it's evolved for the Euro project. What are we seeing here? Yeah, that's right, Van. It's something we've been following closely 
there's been a political shift across Europe arising from a more accommodative fiscal and monetary landscape in recent years. But I guess this was really propelled forward through the pandemic. The dark days of austerity appear behind us. And subsequently, we can see how support for Eurosceptic parties has receded. It's that old correlation between spending and populism. Political stability in the bloc is more favourable in our view of KBRA. In a nutshell, it seems the pandemic has been a trigger for greater EU cohesiveness. Ah, so EU cohesiveness, that's not something that we typically hear coming out of Europe, but it's very interesting from a credit perspective. Um, Ken, let's talk specifics. What policies and what parties are you referring to? Well, if we rewind back in contrast, following the global financial crisis and indeed through the sovereign debt crisis of 2012, there was a lack of capital spending from sovereign governments, coupled with monetary policy environment, which is nowhere near accommodative as it is today. I mean, the ECB raised its policy rate after the global financial crisis. There was also a sense of economic alienation among some member states within the bloc. So this economic environment then prompted a rise in alternative politics. Many championed the idea that their country would be better off outside the euro area. This theme evolved in subsequent years, and we've come close to the bone a few times with the Front National in France in 2017, and both the Five Star Movement and the Northern League in Italy threatening to pull out of the bloc in election campaigns. Not to mention other parties like Syriza in Greece, the AFD in Germany, and Podemos in Spain, who have tended to promote a similar narrative. But it's fair to say the landscape is different today. The ECB is throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the economy in order to lift inflation and fuel a recovery. For example, in Greece, the inclusion of Greek debt in the pandemic emergency purchase program over the last 18 months lowers the cost of government financing for the sovereign, alleviating pressure regarding recovery. ECB also promotes favourable credit conditions within the banking sector and heightened forward guidance from the bank helps ease uncertainty with regard to investment. Coupled with this, we had the landmark decision to enact an EU recovery and resilience facility under the new next generation EU strategy, which provides grants and loans to member states, in a sense, a massive fiscal investment for the bloc. All of those measures are designed to foster economic growth and activity. So this illustrates to the market and to the public that things have changed and that at the height of an economic crisis, the ECB and the EU stood ready to finance a recovery with an expansive toolkit, dispelling much of the Eurosceptic myths of the past. So Ken, is throwing the kitchen sink or everything but the kitchen sink moving the needle politically? What are we seeing on that front? It appears so, Van, yeah. Remember, it's hard for a Eurosceptic party to create a narrative given all this easing. If we look at previous elections versus current polls, we can see the changes a clear standard example is the five-star movement in Italy, where support has declined significantly. And since Draghi came to power, the Northern League has dropped four percentage points in the polls. Syriza's support in Greece is down several points, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party in France has halved support since the 2017 election. In the recent German election last month, the AFD lost 11 seats. The European Commission's Eurobarometer is at its highest level with regard to questions like is having the euro a good thing or a bad thing for your country? So it's clear pro-euro support has firmed and the pandemic seems to have triggered a sense of togetherness within the bloc between member states in the face of a common apolitical foe. As I mentioned, in our view, political and policy stability within the bloc are very favourable and build on our increasingly constructive view of euro area risk. Well, it's fascinating, Ken. Thanks for that colour and feedback. We'll watch it closely. In the future, there's a lot of things that change on the landscape of credit as we go through and come out of an event like the pandemic. And this one, I think, is worth watching closely. Thanks for your comments. Thanks very much, Van.
So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the rise in energy prices is spooking politicians and investors. Beware of the effect of decelerating global economic growth. Two, corporate margins are forecast to expand yet again in 2022. Count us among the skeptical. And three, Europe's political winds are shifting in ways that are reducing euro area credit risk and could turn the tide of long-held euro skeptics. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.